I invite you to turn with, uh, turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, if you have your Bibles, to Romans chapter 5. As we continue our preaching series through the book of Romans this morning, we come to uh, what I think is one of the most beautiful sections in the letter, uh, Romans 5 uh, through Romans 8, um, just a, a beautiful uh, sort of the, the mountain peak of Paul's letter to the Romans. And so uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses uh, Romans 5, verses 1 to 2. Um, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 5, but uh, there are sort of two main themes in verses 1 through 5. In verses 1 to 2, there's the, the theme of peace. And then in verses, uh, the, the last part of verse 2 to verse 5, there's the theme of hope. So next week we're going to be looking at the theme of hope, and specifically hope in suffering. This morning, we look at and focus on the theme of peace from Romans 5, 1 to 2. If you would, please, uh, before we read, uh, bow as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word. Let's pray together. Lord, good, Lord God, how good it is to be in your house to worship you this morning. How good it is to celebrate your faithfulness, to be part of the body of Christ and the fellowship of the Spirit the people belonging to you. I pray now, Lord, that as we turn our attention to your word this morning, that you would fill us with your spirit. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us not only a deeper understanding of what it is to have peace with you, but I pray that we would be deepened in our uh, joy and freedom that comes through that peace. Lord, that we might live as those who have been given peace. And so I pray, O oh Lord, that you would fill us with your spirits to give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive these deep truths of your word that they may be planted deep in us and that it may bear fruit of transformation and change that would be for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I invite you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's word this morning. Like I said, I'm going to read Romans 5, 1 to 5, but the focus will be on verses, the focus of the message will be on verses 1 and 2. So after writing all about Abraham and how he was justified by faith, Paul writes in verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom... We have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So that'll be the focus this morning. And the next week we'll focus on these verses. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You may be seated. So for four chapters, Paul has been building his case for justification by faith. Um, and he's been doing it uh, really well. He's been laboring on the point and, and building his case with, with some strong language 
leading us to this point. And now in chapter 5, Paul transitions from that, from sort of the, the details and the, the uh, you know, the, the logistics of justification by faith. He transitions from that into the so what of this great doctrine. Having shown that believers are justified by faith alone, he now shows us, well, well, how, you know, what, what fruits or what results does this bring? What benefits does this bring for, for believers? And the first benefit that Paul names as he transitions now into sort of the application of this, of this doctrine, the first benefit he names is the benefit of peace with God. And so that is the focus of our message this morning. And we're going to consider this, this topic of peace with God by asking ourselves three questions. Number one, what does Paul mean by peace with God? Number two, how do we attain it? And then number three, what difference does it make in our lives? So first, what does Paul mean by peace with God? When we hear the word peace, we, we often think of, of some kind of serenity. That's the, the, probably the first thing that typically pops into our minds. The, the apologist uh, Michael Ramsden once spoke about a colleague of his, of his who asked an audience to close their eyes and to imagine peace. And then after several seconds, he asked, asked them to share what came to their minds. And they all uh, shared kind of the, the same kinds of pictures. Not exactly the same picture, but the same, the same idea, the same kind of thing. A, a field of wild flowers. A forest of, of beautiful trees. Snow-capped mountains on a, on a bright, sunny day. And a, a beautiful lake with perfectly calm waters. These are the the pictures that came to their minds. And these are the kinds of pictures that, that typically come to mind when we hear the word peace. But that is not what Paul means by peace here in Romans 5. In fact, what Paul means by peace in this text is, is something very specific. And to get at the meaning of what, what Paul has in mind, I think it will be helpful to consider first some of the biblical meanings of peace that Paul does not intend. So just to be clear, what I want to do is to walk with just a few of the biblical ideas, biblical meanings of peace that, that Paul does not mean here, and then we'll get to what I think he does mean. So the word peace is a big word that has different shades of meaning in the Bible. Sometimes peace refers to a sense of inner calm that flows from a deep trust in God. That is not what, how Paul intends it here. But we see this kind of peace, I think, in Philippians 4, verses 6 to 7, where Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. A beautiful picture of this inner calm that flows out of a deep trust in God. Sometimes peace refers to a time of rest from conflict or war, to a, this cessation of hostility or conflict. So, for example, we read in 1 Kings 4, verse 24, that Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms west of the Euphrates River, and he had peace on all sides. That is clearly a reference to, uh, to a rest from war or conflict or from human enemies. Sometimes... The word peace is used, and I would maybe say uh, many times, I don't know if I quite go so far as to, say, as to say most of the time, but many times in the Bible, the word peace is used in a, in a comprehensive sense of the Hebrew term shalom. 
And shalom, as we've talked about before, shalom is sort of this all-encompassing harmony or wellness or well-being in all aspects of life. Shalom is how things are supposed to be. And anything that is, that is broken or anything that is not quite right in the world is a disruption or a vandalism of shalom. We see this all-encompassing shalom-like peace in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians when he says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. So what Paul means by peace here in Romans 5 is not any of these things. It is something different. It is not the subjective peace of inner calm. It is not the outward peace of rest from enemies. And it's not the, the all-encompassing peace of shalom. When Paul says that we have peace with God, he is talking specifically about reconciliation. Reconciliation, as a theological term, reconciliation is the bringing together of two parties that are, that are separated by enmity that are in conflict, that are in a state of, of hostility, that in a state of, of separation or division or, or opposition as a result of, of enmity. What Paul means then by peace with God is that we have been reconciled to God, that where there was once enmity, there is now healing and restoration. We have a restored relationship with God. The idea here is that our sin had left us separated from God in that state of enmity and under his judgment. As Paul has said in the early chapters of Romans, our sinful condition puts us in a state of hostility and rebellion against God. It's not that we are neutral. It's not that our sin leaves us sort of, you know, in the, somewhere in the middle of the road. No, it, it leaves us in a state of hostility and rebellion. And we are by nature then under God's wrath. That is what sin does. And we see this right away in the early chapters of Genesis, don't we? After their fall into sin, uh, God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden. If ever there's a picture of enmity, it's here in, the, in Genesis chapter 3. We, we read in Genesis 3 that the Lord God banished Adam from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, this is a picture of our relationship with God as a result of sin, enmity, separated from him, banished from his presence, a, a flaming sword that says you, you cannot enter, you cannot come back, you cannot be in the presence of a holy God. So the state of hostility and, and tension. And Paul says that when we are justified through faith in Christ, that relationship is restored. That, that barrier is removed. The, the flaming sword is obliterated. The dividing wall of hostility, as Paul says uh, in Ephesians, is torn down. That is what Paul means when he says that we have peace with God. We see this meaning of peace, I think, so clearly in Colossians chapter 1, where Paul says, Once you were alienated, it's that same kind of language, alienated from God, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Again, not, not just sort of indifferent, not in a state of neutrality. You were enemies of God. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death, to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. 
This is what peace with God looks like. And this is what God has been doing ever since the fall of humanity into sin. He's been carrying out his plan of redemption, drawing his people back into his embrace, changing our status from enemies to friends, from from those who are cut off to those who are drawn in, from those who are objects of his wrath to those who are objects of his affection. Paul elaborates on this peace with God in verse 2. So our restored relationship with God means that we have access into his favor. Paul says, through Christ, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And that we have gained access into grace it's an interesting expression, means that, that, that we are welcomed. The, the word access uh, uh, is, is maybe a little bit softer in English than it is in Greek because it has this implication of, of divine initiative, of, of introduction almost, of, of, of welcoming, of, of drawing in. And so we, that we have gained access into the grace means we are welcomed, introduced into grace, which is God's favor, undeserved favor. And so the, the barrier that separated us from God's favor has been removed. The, the way to God that had been closed is now open. That word access in Greek also carries with it the implication of status. Uh, so to be given access into something is to have a high enough status to enter. Uh, let me give you an example. Back in 2011... Uh, Shaquille O'Neal, who at the time was, uh, was uh, one of the, the biggest... Uh, uh, basketball stars in the NBA. I think 2011 was, if I remember correctly, I think was either the end, the, the last of his year, near the end of his, of his playing days, of his basketball career. So 2011, Shaquille O'Neal tried to get into the White House uh, to see President Obama. He thought, hey, I'd like to see the president. I'd like to just kind of hang out with him a little bit. So he, he went up, he drove to the White House and went up to the security guards and said, you know, I'm Shaq. He's seven foot one, hard to miss. Pretty imposing presence. Said, I'm, I'm Shaq. I'd, I'd, I'd like to see the, the president. Can I go in and, and visit with him? And he thought that his celebrity status might give him enough clout to enter. Well, you can imagine how that went. He was not allowed access to, into the White House to see the president. His access was denied because his status as a sports star and celebrity was well below the status of the president of the United States. And so his access was denied. Well, the disparity between our status and God's status is infinitely greater than the disparity between Shaq's status and the president. And yet, through our justification by faith, we are given, granted, credited the status, the status of righteousness that that grants us access into the presence of God. That's what Paul says. Is saying, And if you think about that, what a beautiful gift that is. That if you have been justified through faith in Christ, then you have peace with God. You are welcomed into his presence. You are part of his family. You are the object of his affection and his favor. You, you never have to live in fear of his judgment. And he will never leave you or forsake you. There is a place for you around his table of fellowship. This is what it means to have peace with God. Which brings us then to our second question 
So if peace with God is a reconciling peace, a peace that, that brings sinners into a right relationship with God, well, how then do we attain this peace? Paul gives us the answer. He says it is through the death and resurrection of Christ received in faith. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. How? By, by what means? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he elaborates on this reconciling peace a little bit later, just a few verses later in Romans 5, verses 9 to 11, where he says, since we, since we have now been justified by Christ's blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? And so we attain this, this reconciling peace with God through the sacrificial death of Christ, which we receive in faith. It is only by means of what God has done for us in Christ that we have peace. There, there is no other way to have peace with God. That is the only possible way is through what Christ has done for us at the cross. I read a story uh, this past week about a pastor named Kevin. And Kevin, he was a pastor of a, of a fairly large church and he got to a point in his ministry where he just got, got completely burned out and, and uh, was, he fell into this, this, this deep and dark state of depression. His work had become so burdensome, he just he got, he got paralyzed by depression. And things, things got so bad that, 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 that he just, he, he, he left, he, he fled. So he wrote, he just, he wrote a letter of resignation to the, to the elder board, and he wrote a letter uh, to his family, his wife and his kids, saying goodbye, and, and he just, just left. He fled up to Canada to a remote place in Newfoundland, Canada, and it was winter when he left, and, and uh, he got a job as a logger, which, you know, as a pastor, a lot of times you, you think about escaping to non-ministry-related things, you know, oh, how great to be a game warden or, a, a, you know, to do landscaping, something concrete with your hands that, you know, it's not messy and it's not... It's not People, you know that kind of a thing, and and so, and so, he did that. That's what he did. Go up into Canada in the woods and in a remote place and just be a logger for a little while. And he lived in this little small trailer that was heated by a little small metal heater. And and one night when it was twenty below zero, that little heater gave out, and that was the breaking point for Kevin. Because, uh, so he, he, in a fit of rage, he took that metal heater and he, and he threw it through the window, which shattered the window to pieces. And he instantly knew what a stupid thing that was to do because all of the bitter cold air came streaming through the window into his little trailer. And he fell to the floor and he started yelling out to God, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. How could you let me get to this point? And he curled up into a fetal position, unable to move or speak or even too exhausted to cry. But as he lay there on the floor of his trailer, he heard the sound of crying, not his own, and this heavy breathing. And of course, he was in the middle of the woods, in the middle of nowhere. And so whether it was imagined or real, he says he knew in that moment that what he was hearing was the sound of Christ crying and his heavy breathing as he struggled on the cross. And for the first time in a very long time, he received in faith what Christ had done for him. 
He knew in that moment that he was an enemy of God, reconciled to God through the death of his son, through what Christ had done for him on the cross. The blood of Christ shed for him, the abandoner, the the reckless wanderer, the doubter, the, the blasphemer of heaven. And with renewed wonder over what God had done for him in Christ, he got up off the floor and he got into his car and he returned to his family and he returned to his church, and from that point on, he served with renewed passion and vigor. It is only through Christ and his death for us that we attain peace with God. As God said through the prophet Isaiah, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that did what? That that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. That brings us then to our final question this morning, and that is, well, what difference then does all of this make? How are we to live in light of the fact that we have this peace with God? And there are, of course, many things that we could say about how having peace with God impacts our lives. We, we, we could we do a whole series on, on that, that application alone, but I want to leave us this morning with just two considerations. First, Because God has so lavished his grace on us to give us peace with him, we ought to strive to live at peace with others. That's a message that comes through consistently and clearly throughout Scripture. As peace receivers, we are called to be peacemakers. After laying out what God has done for us in Christ to make us reconcile to himself in the, in the book of Ephesians and the whole first chapters of Ephesians. And so Paul lays it out beautifully, what God has done to reconcile us to himself. Paul says then in Ephesians chapter 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And so this is what God has done for you. This is how God has reconciled you to himself in Christ. Now, here's how you are to live. Live at peace with each other. And so too, the writer of Hebrews, after spelling out in great detail how the sacrifice of Christ provides the only true cleansing of sin and is the only means by which sinners can be at peace with God. So that same structure, that same sort of, here's what God has done, the indicatives of grace, which flow into the imperatives of faith. So the writer of Hebrews does the same thing that Paul does in Ephesians. And he says, after having laid all this out so clearly, here's how you are reconciled to God. Here's how you're given peace with God in Christ. Then he says in Hebrews 12, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. As peace receivers, we are called to be peacemakers. Because God has given so much, so much to reconcile us to himself, we are called to give much as we strive for reconciliation with others. And it will be hard because people say and do things that hurt us deeply. And I think some of us are living in that that place right now. I think especially after the last couple of years, there there was... polarizations, there were tensions, there were hostilities, there were animosities, and there were wounds and divisions that, that divided churches, that divided this fellowship here at Covenant Church in some ways. There was bitterness, there was anger. To live in peace with others is to do the hard work of working through those things. To do the hard work of forgiveness, to do the hard work of letting go of the hurt, letting go of the pain, letting go of the wounds, sending them away, 
as Christ did at the cross. To live in peace with others is a costly way to live. It involves sacrifice. You, you cannot live in peace with others without sacrificing something, and sometimes without sacrificing much. It requires forgiveness. It means not holding on to the bitterness and the wounds that others have inflicted on you. It is a hard thing to do. We see a glimpse of this in a woman who endured the atrocities of apartheid as part of a South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, this South African woman sat in an emotionally loaded courtroom listening to police officers acknowledge the horrors they had committed. One of the police officers in the courtroom with this South African woman that day was a, a police officer, was an officer named uh, Officer Vandebroek. And he was the officer responsible for the death of this woman's son and the death of her husband. He shot her son at point-blank range. And then he and others partied. And he, he was relaying and acknowledging this in the courtroom. That he shot her son at point-blank range, then he and others partied while they burned his body, turning it over and over like a roasted pig over the flames until his body was reduced to ashes. And then eight years later, this same officer returned to this woman's house to seize her husband. And shortly after midnight, he took her to a woodpile where her husband was bound and he forced her to watch as he and other officers poured gasoline onto his body and then set him to flames. And the last words that she heard her husband say to her were, forgive them. And now, here was this woman in a courtroom with Officer Vandebroek standing before her awaiting judgment. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission asked her what she wanted. What, what do you want out of this, this moment? What do you want to see happen? And this is what she said. She said, I want three things. Number one, I want Mr. Vandebroek to take me to the place where they burned my husband's body. I want to gather up the dust and give him a decent burial because he never had one. Number two, she said, Mr. Vandebroek took my whole family away from me, but I still have a lot of love to give. And so twice a month, I want him to come to the ghetto where I live and spend a day with me so I can be like a mother to him. And third, she said, I want Mr. Vandebroek to know that I forgive him. She said, our God is a God who has forgiven more than we can know, and out of that forgiveness, I forgive. And then this elderly woman asked someone to lead her across the courtroom where she embraced the officer who had stolen everything from her. And he was so overwhelmed that he, he broke down in heaving sobs. And unprompted, someone from within the courtroom began to sing Amazing Grace, and eventually everyone joined in. Because God has lavished, has so lavished his grace on us to give us peace with him, we ought to strive to live at peace with others, and it will be costly, and it will be hard. 
But there is no forgiveness required of us that can ever exceed what we have been forgiven. The second difference that our peace with God makes is that we are to draw near to God. You see, the Gospels record that when Jesus died on the cross, at that very moment, the temple curtain was torn in two. A very significant recording in the Gospels. The temple curtain, of course, was the, the, the curtain in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place. It was the curtain that barred access to the presence of God. Only one person, only the high priest, and only he, one time a year, could enter into that most holy place. Otherwise, it was, it was separated by this curtain. You cannot enter. You cannot, sinful people cannot be in the presence of a holy God. And so the torn curtain meant that the way was now opened, that access to the glorious presence of God was now granted through the death of Jesus, that his body was like that curtain, that through his death, his body torn for you, you are now able to enter into the glorious presence of God. And the writer of Hebrews tells us what difference this ought to make in our lives. He says, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through what? Through the curtain, which is, he says, his body. Therefore, since all this has been given, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Let us draw near to God, the writer of Hebrews says, since the way has been opened, since we have been reconciled to God with Christ, in Christ, since we have been given access to his presence and all of the, the glories of his grace, let us, let us go in. Let us draw near to him. And what a wonder that we can come to him in prayer that we can read his word and actually encounter the living God on the pages of scripture. What a, what a wonder that is, and that we can experience the delights of his gifts of grace, that when we celebrate communion together, we are being nurtured by the living God in the way of faith and in the grace and the, the glories of the grace that he has given. I mean, there's a whole world of wonders and gifts available to us if we just draw near to receive them. And what a shame that for so many, the way has been opened. But they do little more than just linger in the doorway. I remember one day when I first started my doctoral program at, at Trinity, at, at TEDS. Uh, this was, I think it was my first class. And I was, I was sitting through a lecture in one of the classrooms. And, and the time came for the afternoon break. And so all the students, I mean, it had been a long day of lectures, all the students poured out of the classroom and into the common area, and we're kind of fellowshipping and visiting together, and we see there's this room that's, that's kind of attached to that common area, and we, we peeked into the room, and we saw that it was just loaded with refreshments. I mean, there, there was coffee of, of all kinds. I'm not a coffee drinker, but there were specialty drinks of all, all kinds. There, there, there were uh, trays full of fruits and vegetables, platters full of pastries, and, and there were baskets with, with bread of all different kinds. There was one whole table that was filled with, with cakes and pies and assortment of all these, these different kinds of treats. And so we stood there, and it was all laid out on tables like around the entire room. And we stood there just sort of, you know, 
admiring the display and longing to enjoy it. It looks so good. But we all assumed it was off limits because, you know, well, we, we figured it was either for faculty. It's in a special room, so it must be for faculty only. Or maybe it's for a special conference. We knew a conference was coming up later in that day, so it's probably food for the conference. So there we are just lingering in the doorway, peering in. And then the director of the doctoral program came out and he walked past us into the room. Then he turned around and he looked at us and he saw us just standing there. And he said, well, what are you, you just going to look at the food? You're going to eat it. He said, you know, come on in and enjoy. All of this is for you. And it was like the most amazing thing. that This is what the doctoral program is going to be. This is going to be great. <laughs> That's what, well, it wasn't so great. I mean, there was a lot of work, but the food was great. That's what God says to us in Christ. We have a whole room full of spiritual blessings in Christ. We have available to us a whole feast of delights. And in Christ, the, the curtain has been torn down. The, the doors are open. The feast is laid out, and it's ours to enjoy. So let us come in. Let us draw near to God and enjoy the feast. Let us bask in the wonder that our guilt, that our guilt has been taken away, that we are no longer enemies but, but his friends, no longer objects of his wrath but objects of his affection. Let us delight in the feast of spiritual blessings in Christ. Come to him in prayer. Get to know him more deeply through his word. Grow in the wonders of his grace through worship and solitude. Since we have peace with God, let us draw near to God with a deep assurance that the guilt of our sin has been taken away. The distinguished 19th century preacher J.C. Ryle wrote about the connection between justification and peace with God, which is what Paul establishes here in verses 1 and 2. So I'll, cl I'll close this morning with this quote from J.C. Ryle. He says, or he said, without justification, it is impossible to have real peace. Sin, he says, is a mountain between man and God, and it must be taken away. The sense of guilt lies heavy on the heart and must be removed. And so he says, we have peace with God because we are justified. So out of the, out of the beautiful doctrine of justification by faith comes this benefit of peace with God. It is the peace of reconciliation attained through the sacrificial death of Christ for our sin, received in faith to the glory of God. And so let us live in the freedom and joy of that peace. Let's bow together. Lord God, as we come before your throne in this time of silent prayer and response, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would reveal to us more deeply and draw us in more deeply this beautiful gift of peace with you. Impress upon our hearts and our minds what it is, what a wonder it is that we have been reconciled to you. And in this moment, O oh Lord, may our hearts surrender to you. May we draw near to you.
And may you equip us, O Lord. Having been given such a radical and lavish peace to live at peace with others. Lord, hear our silent prayers of response this morning. Lord God, since we have been justified, given the status of righteousness through faith in Christ, as a result, as a, the, the benefit of that, O oh Lord, is that we have peace with you through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Lord, it is in Christ alone that we have this peace. It is in Christ alone that we have this hope of fellowship with you, of drawing near into your presence, of being reconciled to you. In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. To law on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, and in that moment, we became, we, we, we went from objects of his wrath to objects of his affection. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, we live. Oh, Lord, may we live in the joy of knowing that in Christ, we have been given peace with God. In his name we pray, amen.